I don't know if you uh, have got the theme I've been trying to bring across, a, a thread that I hope has run through our sessions, and that is that God instituted marriage in the family in the Garden of Eden. He gave us a divine pattern there. It's uh, something that we were allowed to bring out of paradise with us. It's the only thing that Adam and Eve brought out of the Garden of Eden after their fall was their relationship to one another. And so uh, that's why at, at the beginning of each of these sessions, we've called it Unlocking the Garden Gate, Finding Paradise in Your Home. Because uh, what God instituted there in the Garden of Eden, He intends for us to experience a bit of here in this fallen world. And, and we can have a little bit of paradise with us. So we started in Genesis, and I think it's fitting that we end in Revelation, because the whole Bible kind of dovetails forms a circle there. What started in Genesis, we find culminated and fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We're going to see uh, a vision God gave John. John, the apostle, nearly a hundred years old, had a gospel that was so powerful that the mighty Roman Empire couldn't do anything with him except exile him to a rocky island of Patmos to try to shut him up and stop his ministry. But even there, God used him to write this wonderful last book of the Bible. So in Revelation chapter 21, <clears throat> beginning at verse 1. We'll read these words. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, 
which is the second death. Let's pray. Our Father, as as we've sung this morning, You are the beautiful One whose glory fills the earth. And if we have eyes to see, we will see Your glory everywhere. And one of the places where You display Your glory, Lord, is in the home. The husband and wife relationship where we see Christ's sacrificial love and a church's devoted obedience and submission to her Lord. Where we see fruit being born and a godly offspring being given and the world transformed by the spirit that works in us. Lord, help us to... Look at our own marriage and our own home and our own family as a place where the glory of God is displayed. Help us to yield our lives and our hearts and our wills to making that come to pass in our own home. And now, Lord, as we look into your word and we see home as it will be for us in reality one day. I pray that you would help us to make our earthly homes something like our heavenly home. And we'll give you the glory because, Lord, we can't do it. You would have to build this house. But you give us a partnership in it. You said, unless the Lord builds a house... They labor in vain who build it. And so we know we're to labor. We know we we have a part to play and we know we're to build it. But we know that ultimately, Lord, it will be your doing as we yield our lives to you. So help us as you speak to us through your word this morning. Help us to say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. Yes, Lord, here are my hands, here are my feet, here's my heart. Take me, Lord, and... And use me to make my home like heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. Well, there are three institutions divinely ordained on earth. There's the family. There's the government. And there's the church. Out of these three institutions, only one was given to us before the fall. And we've already mentioned that. That was the family. It's the only thing that uh, came to the world uh, that's still in the world, as far as these institutions go, before sin. Government was ordained by God to restrain sin and to punish sinners. The church was ordained by God to be a channel of redeeming sinners and and restoring them uh, to their relationship with God. But the family was ordained by God before sin ever entered the world. And so, it is a piece of paradise. It should be a, a foretaste of heaven for us. After all, uh, C.H. Spurgeon said, 
that we ought to so live at home that if the angels were asked to reside with us for a time, they wouldn't find themselves out of their element. They would feel right at home. Think about it. Uh, Heaven is, is often put in homey family kinds of terms. Jesus called it the Father's house. He said, I'm... In my father's house, there are a lot of rooms. I love that picture he gives us in John 14. It's dad's house. It's it's my father's house. And there are a lot of rooms there. And I'm going to prepare a room for you, he said. When Sandy and I go home, we often stay at my mother's house. And uh, there's a room in her house that's Jimmy's room. I mean, Jimmy... Hadn't been Jimmy for a long time, and he certainly hasn't been at home for many, many years, decades. But there's a room there that has always been Jimmy's room. And when we come with suitcases in hand, she says, your room's ready, just go put them in your room. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are a lot of rooms, and I'm going to prepare a room, a place for you. That's homey. That's family. Paul said, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, after whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The author of the book of Hebrews said that uh, he who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified, you and me, are all of one flesh and bone. Wherefore, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And so, there is, there is this family theme, this home theme about heaven. And, and heaven, our home, ought to be a foretaste of heaven. Your home right here, where you're going to go back when you leave this conference ground, should be a haven, a, a, a foretaste. Of heaven. We know, of course, that that's not often, not always the case. I, I remember hearing uh, of a lady whose husband died and, and she went to a seance to see if she could contact him on the other side. And to her astonishment, she did. And, and she said, Henry, uh, is that you? He said, Yes, me, Martha. And, and she said, So you're still alive? He said, I'm still alive, Martha. She said, Henry, is life up there really that much better than the life you had down here with me? And he said, oh, Martha, it is much, much better. Big thumbs up there, Martha. It's much better than the life I had with you. But, uh, Martha, you should know, I'm not up there. (laughs) So... uh, yeah, it's not always the case that home is like heaven, but it should be. So how can you and I make our homes a little bit of paradise, a little bit more like heaven? I think we might have some keys here when we look at John's vision of heaven that I read to you. And if we're going to make our home like heaven, we need to know that heaven is a place of commencement. It's a place of commencement. It's a place of of newness, of new beginnings. 
He said in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And uh, Jesus said, uh, Behold, I make all things new in verse 5. It's a place of commencement. In, in heaven, relationships are new. They're made new. You remember some of Jesus' religious enemies came to him to test him. They were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they came to show him how foolish the doctrine of resurrection was. And they said, hey, there was this woman... She was married to a man, and the man died, and so she married his brother, and he died, and she married his brother, and he died. And, and you know, after a while, if you were this, in this family, you wouldn't marry this girl, would you? But he's seven times she married, and all seven husbands died, so whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus said, you're mistaken. You don't understand the Scriptures, and you don't really believe in the power of God. In the resurrection... Those relationships are different. They're new. They don't marry or nor are they given in marriage in heaven. So in heaven, all relationships become new. That's important on earth too. And we've talked about that already. How in the formula given to Adam, it's uh, you leave. You break old ties. You leave your mother and your father And you have a new relationship. You leave and you cleave to your wife. And uh, the fabric of your life is woven in to the fabric of her life. And, And there's a new priority, a new relationship. Something new has commenced and old, the old life is left behind. That is so important in our earthly life. To break old ties. Somebody said... Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage because uh, Adam could never tell Eve how good his mother used to make that dish. And Eve could never tell Adam about all the other men she could have married. It's important that we forget our old ties. We forget the old life and, and we start something new with our home. I... Sandy and I had best friends in college, Dave and Kendra. And we used to go over to their house every Friday night, and, or they would come to ours, and we would uh, play Boggle or Scrabble or, and have dinner together. And our, our kids were about the same age, and they would play. And we just loved this couple. But there was something in their marriage that they just could not get over, and that was Kendra had a boyfriend. And she married Dave just because she was pregnant. But she never really got over her boyfriend. And, and I mean, they'd been married 10, 12 years. And, and she still carried this torch for her old boyfriend. They, he was in another part of the country, but they could never get over that. Eventually, they divorced and... Uh, It's been a very sad thing. It's so important that you commence a new life and and 
Heaven is a place of commencement. It's also a place of communion. Look at, uh, at verse 1 once again. John says something that's uh, kind of astounding to me. Something that would uh, make somebody like me who loves the beach and the ocean wonder if heaven's all that great after all. What does he say? He says, there was no more sea. Well, I don't like that. I love the ocean. I love the, the way it shows me the, the vastness of God. And, and I just love the ocean. But John says there was no more sea. You see, for John, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, that Mediterranean Sea was not a beautiful thing. It was that unswimmable barrier, that uncrossable barrier that kept him separated from his beloved church that he pastored in Ephesus. It was, it was that thing that kept him from his beloved. No more sea. John liked that. No more separation is basically what he was saying. And there are so many seas of separation in our home today. There's the separation, the sea of silence. The sea of silence. We just don't communicate. We just don't talk. Some years ago, Dr. Roy Rhodes did a study and he, he researched how, how much do couples communicate. And he, he did this study with couples who had been married 10 years or longer. And he found out that as, if it's anything more than just pass the salt or what's for dinner, I mean real talking and communicating and sharing with one another, it amounted to 37 minutes a week. That's barely more than five minutes a day where husbands and wives communicated. 37 minutes a week, the sea of silence. In another study, a German uh, researcher named Yuri Bronfenbrenner, Bronfenbrenner, you thought Kennebrew was tough. (laughs) Yuri Bronfenbrenner wanted to find out how much dads were communicating with their teenage children. And... First, he did a survey and he said, how much do you think you talk to your kids? And they all filled out what they guessed the right answer was. And and it averaged out to about 17 minutes uh, a day. That's what they thought they were doing. So then he mic'd them. He put little microscopic mics on them and recorded their encounters with their children. They thought 17 minutes a day. 37 seconds a day. 37 seconds was the average. It averaged out to about 2.7 encounters a day that lasted 10 to 15 seconds each. The sea of silence. Now men, the sea of silence is primarily something we dug and filled up. Uh, Your wife probably... uh, didn't contribute to this. So let me talk to men. We're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Right? 
And Christ was a communicator. Christ communicated. Christ revealed His heart and His will. As a matter of fact, Christ is called in John chapter 1, what? The Logos. What is that? The Word. He, he's, he is the channel through which God communicates. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, God who in sundry times and various manners uh, spoke to us through the prophets has in this last days communicated to us through His Son. Jesus was a communicator. If you and I are going to love our families like Christ loved the church, we have to open up and talk. And Sandy's saying, who is that? Who is that giving this admonition? His silent Bob there. I don't talk. I don't communicate. I do all my talking right here. And when I go home, I'm pretty quiet, aren't I? Well, until I say, knock, knock. Yeah, knock, knock. Knock, knock means, okay, what happened from the beginning of your day to the time you came home? Because my, my usual answer would be, it's okay. How was your day? It's fine. That's not what she wants to know. It's communication. It's uh, the sea of silence separates us, keeps us from communing and having fellowship. There's another sea. There's the sea of silence. There's the sea of selfishness. The sea of selfishness. That same verse in Ephesians 5.25 that says we're to love as Christ loved the church. The next phrase is what? And gave Himself for it. Christ gave Himself for the church. I told you uh, Pastor Grady, my, my pastor's question to me in premarital counseling was, if, if you were in a terrible accident before the honeymoon and Sandy was incapacitated, could you serve her, feed her, bathe her, carry her, move her for the rest of your life? Could you serve her that way? That's the kind of love we're called to have, a, a self-sacrificing love. And yet there is so much selfishness in our marriages and in our families. Some, uh, Christ gave Himself for His bride. Some of us won't give up a TV show for our partner. Some of us won't give up a promotion or, or a new account or a new preaching assignment or uh, just to, to have time to spend with the family. I saw a cartoon one time uh, in the newspaper with a, uh, a man sitting in his recliner with a remote control and his wife was standing at the front door, bags packed, steaming, about to leave. And, and he looks over and he says, Sweetheart, can't this wait till halftime so we can talk this thing out? It's uh, selfishness. The sea of selfishness. I heard a, a testimony one time on James Dobson's show. A father was telling of, of the heartbreak that he felt when his son committed suicide. 
and uh, if I remember correctly, he heard a he heard a gunshot in his 17-year-old son's bedroom, and he ran upstairs and and found his son, uh, gun next to him in a pool of blood. He had shot himself in his head in the head, and and he picked his son up and he he cried. John, don't go. I love you. And he said, when I heard those words coming out of my mouth, I realized I hadn't said those words to John since he was a baby. Too too self-absorbed, too involved in all of his other things to have paid attention to his wife. There was a rural survey given some years ago to... To teens, teens in not in, in a metropolis like Seattle, but out in the country, teens who we stereotypically think have stronger family lives, and they were asked, uh, "Who do you turn to? Where do you go? What do you do when you feel down? When you feel depressed? When you've got a problem weighing on your mind? Where do you go for help?" They were given 54 options. Fifty-four options were given. Out of fifty-four options, mom was number 31, dad was number 48. Where did they go? They went to their friends, their peers. Second, they looked to TV to give them some kind of answers. Third and fourth... They resorted to drugs or they just went shopping. Why? Because mom and dad hadn't treated them like they were important. Mom and dad were too self-absorbed, involved in the swimming in the sea of selfishness. And there was no communion there. And... uh, There's also the sea of busyness. The sea of busyness. You have a lot going on in your life, don't you? There's work, there's school, there's uh, the home, there's community projects, there's church. Uh, There's a lot going on in life and sometimes we're just too busy to communicate and to commune and to fellowship and and to let our lives weave with the lives of those who live under our roof. There's nothing on earth as important as your family. Well, heaven is a place of commencement and a place of communion. It's also a place of consecration, and it's characterized by three things. The presence of God, the people of God, and the prohibitions of God. It's a place of consecration, a place of holiness, a place of, that is set apart uh, for God. It's characterized by the presence of God. Look what he says in verse 3. He said, I heard a voice, and it said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. 
He will dwell with them. Our home ought to be a place where God evidently lives. Where God obviously is. Our children ought to feel like God is in these walls. He should be the unseen guest at every meal. He should be uh, seen as the all-seeing guide at every crossroads. When your family has a decision to make, mom and dad and children together ought to be on their knees and asking God for His wisdom. And, And so that children understand, when we're at a fork in the road, God knows what's at the end of that way, and He knows what's at the end of that way. He sees the end from the beginning, and so mom and dad ask God's wisdom and God's help. The presence of God is in heaven. He dwells with them. He will be with them. And they will dwell with Him. God, the Father, ought to be the model for discipline. When, when you're disciplining your children, you ought to remember how God your Father disciplines you. You ought to explain to your child why they're being disciplined. You ought to discipline uh, in love and compassion. They ought to see it. If you've got to spank them, they ought to see a tear in your eye. Not a red face and an angry expression. Uh, and, I, and I certainly do recommend you spank your children. Where's Don? Don? Can I get an amen? Uh, I understand. I understand that's your entire parenting philosophy. (laughs) Well, it's certainly an important thing to do, and to do early, and to do consistently. There comes a time in your child's life where it's not effective, and so you do it early. God is a model for our discipline. All disobedience that a child does ought to be seen as disobedience to God. That you have disobeyed God. You haven't just broken a house rule. You have broken God's law. And there is a price to pay. Heaven is a place of consecration characterized by the presence of God. Characterized... Uh, well, there are all the things I just should have said. And then characterized by the people of God. Notice in verse 3, he says, The tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. They shall be His people. Not, not some of them, but all of them. Everyone in heaven is God's child. Everyone in our home ought to come to the knowledge of Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, every spouse, and both, both mom and dad, husband and wife, should be. God's people. And so, Paul tells us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you're a believer and not married, you must not marry an unbeliever. 
All the people in your home should be the people of God. Of course, if you uh, got saved after you were married, you are not to divorce your unbelieving spouse. No unequal yoke, and uh, Proverbs 22.6 says that your children should be taught. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, that's dad's responsibility primarily, to see that, that children are trained up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that the family follows the way of God. In Genesis 18, verse 19, God said of Abraham, I know him, that he will command his children and his family after him that they should keep the way of the Lord. It was Abraham's job, and Abraham was commended. I know him. He will command his family and his children to follow the Lord. In Joshua 24:15, Joshua said to the children of Israel, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will, what? Serve the Lord. And Joshua didn't look over at Mrs. Joshua and say, Is that okay, sweetie? It's the man's job to be the leader in the home and to lead them to be the people of God. Heaven is a place of consecration characterized by the presence of God, the people of God, and the prohibitions of God. There are some things that are not allowed in heaven. Heaven's gate is closed to certain things, and your door ought to be closed to certain things too. What are some of the things that we find are prohibited in heaven. In verse 8, he says, the unbelieving, the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they're all out and in the lake of fire. So, let's look at these. This catalog of of things that God doesn't let in His house and we ought not to let in ours. He said the cowardly and unbelieving. There should be no, no fearful unbelief in our house. Now there are frightening things in the world and, and we come in out of the world into our house maybe afraid. But fear ought not to be allowed to stay in our house. Fear is a sign that we don't trust God. Fear is the opposite of faith. Every time Jesus appeared to people and they were afraid, He said what? Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm here. It's me. And, and that ought to be uh, the pervading atmosphere of our home. It should be a place of security and confidence and everything's alright. Why is everything alright? Because God is here. And God's our Father, and He'll take care of us. And in our home, we're not going to be afraid. We're not going to be insecure. We're going to have an atmosphere of security and assurance and faith. Not only no fearful unbelief, but God says, no hatred, no strife. Where do I get that? He says, no murderers. No murderers. Now... Remember what uh, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount about murderers? 
He said, uh, if you hate your brother without a cause, you are a murderer. And so, I say no hatred. You know, your kids come home from school and they say, I hate Jenny. No, sweetheart, you don't hate her. That, you can't hate her. You have to love her. What did Jenny do? Well, she did this or that. Well, you know, that, that gives you an opportunity to obey Jesus and to love your enemies and to do like Jesus did when he said, Father, forgive them as they nailed him to a cross. Uh, you get to be like Jesus. And I know what you're feeling, but you need to ask the Lord to take that away and help you to love Jenny. No hatred. No strife. Remember what James said in James chapter 3 when he talked about the tongue? He said it's full of deadly poison. Well, what does deadly poison do? It kills. You inject deadly poison in someone, you're a murderer. And, and so we can kill with our tongue. That's not allowed in heaven. That's not allowed in our house. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 19, I believe, says, or verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So, uh, no hatred, no strife, no ugly speaking. It's not allowed in heaven. It's not allowed in the home. No sexual immorality. That's spelled out pretty plainly here. He says the sexually immoral will not be there. Now, that is hard to keep out of our house. If you have a television, if you have a radio, uh, sex sells. And, and even you may be watching a decent program and then a commercial comes on. And, and there's little you can do about that except throw the TV out. And if you don't want to do that... Just to teach your children, that's wicked. That's not allowed. Not allowed in heaven. Not allowed in our home. Another of the prohibitions of heaven is no sorcery. No sorcery. The the Greek word there is pharmakous. There's several applications here. We could readily see in that Greek word the word pharmacy, can't we? Drugs. No drugs. In my house, there was no alcohol. I don't know about yours. I know there's a diversity of opinion on this in Christian circles. But in my house, alcohol was a drug and we didn't have it. There's another application to this, sorcery, astrology. No, no horoscopes, no, no astrology, no Ouija boards. Nothing associated with the occult in my house. It's not in heaven, it's not in home. And then the Bible says that, that rebellion... 1 Samuel 15:23 rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft 
And so if there's no witchcraft, we also don't allow rebellion. We don't allow uh, you to revolt against the king of your house or the queen of your house. No rebellion at our house. No rebellion in heaven. Parents don't rebel against God and uh, don't go home after church and have roasted preacher. Your children hear that. And if you rebel against God and, and what God is doing, then don't blame them for rebelling against you and what you are doing. You are God's representative in that home. Parents don't rebel against God and children don't rebel against their parents. And parents, when they, when they try, and, and I don't know a child that doesn't at some time stand up and say, No! To his mom or dad. But when they try to take over, you must quickly and decisively win the power struggle. You must. And, and I recommend the resources of James Dobson and, and Focus on the Family to give you guidelines for doing just that. Well, <clears throat> no sorcery. No idolatry. No idolatry. He said all the idolaters are gone from there. They're in the lake of fire. He says in verse 3, He shall be their God. The true God, the only God there is, will be their God. Your children know who your God is. If your God is your garden, you know, if you're always bowing your knee to weed the crabgrass out, if, if you're spending more of your time uh, shining the car or, or taking care of work, who is your God? Where do you spend all your energy and all your time and all your devotion and all your money? Your children know who your God is. And, and you don't have to bow down to a wooden totem pole or something to have an idol. God must be first in your life. He must be first in home. He is their God and there are no idolaters there. And then, finally, he says, no liars. The truth, the truth must reign in our home. The truth must uh, be told about everything. Sometimes that means you'll have to come to your family and to your, even your children and say, you know, I, I did wrong. I'm sorry, I was wrong. You have to tell the truth about everything because even the little things, if you want them to believe you and take you seriously about the big things, that might have something to say to you about Santa, Santa Claus, and Easter Bunny. I don't know, I'll leave that up to you. And between you and God, but um, <clears throat> those are those are 
traditions, and we can say there to our children, that's a tradition that's fun, and, and we do that. But it's a tradition. It's not a biography of St. Nicholas who really did exist, but I don't think he had shiny-nosed reindeers. Um, So home and heaven are a place set apart from God, a place of consecration. And finally, heaven is a place of comfort. Look at verse 4. He says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or sorrow or crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Uh, Heaven is a place of comfort. It's, It's characterized by encouragement. Every tear wiped away. At school, kids get picked on. At work, people get stabbed in the back and betrayed and... They do a good job and they're not thanked and they're underappreciated. At home, they need to be lifted up. At home, the tears need to be wiped away. At home, they need to be hugged and appreciated and lifted up and encouraged. That's, that's a wonderful greeting we're going to get when we come home. Every tear wiped away. We're going to be told, it's okay. That's not going to happen again. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. You're home. Every day when we come home, that ought to be the message. It's okay. You're home. You're home now. We love you here. It's okay. Encouragement. And... Inclusion. Look at chapter uh, 21, verse 12. God uh, gives John this vision. He continues to describe the city. And he says, Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. All twelve tribes are included there. There is... Uh, of course, the priestly tribe of Levi and the kingly tribe of Judah, but the little tiny nothing tribe of Naphtali, her name's there. And those tribes that didn't uh, brave the crossing of the Jordan and, and come to the original promised land, but stayed on the east side, the half-tribe of Manasseh and, and uh I've forgotten the other tribe now, but the the tribes that didn't come into the promise, their name is there. Every name, all 12 tribes are included. Their name is there. And look what he says in verse, uh, well, that was verse 12. 13 says, and there are three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And verse 14 says, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Certainly Peter's name is there. Why, Peter the rock, on this rock I'll build my church. And, and he stood up and, and uh, 
with the keys of the kingdom, opened the door to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, opened the door to Israel on the day of Pentecost, preached that mighty sermon. Surely the Apostle Peter's name is there. But so is the name of James the Less. Who is James the Less? Well, he was one of the apostles. I don't know anything about him. Do you? I know about the other James, the son of Zebedee. Why, he was John's brother. He was a son of thunder. He, he led the church in Jerusalem. He was martyred. Herod cut his head off. His name is there. But so is James the Less. So is Doubting Thomas. His name is there too. Everybody's name is there. Everybody's included. Everybody's accepted. Every tribe, every apostle, and it's important in our home to make sure that everybody knows you belong here. Your name is here. You're accepted here. You might not belong to the swim team. You might not have made the cut. You might not belong to the debate team. You might not belong on the honor roll. But you belong here. You're included here. It wouldn't be the same without you here. Your name belongs here. One of my favorite old, old movies is Life with Father. Have any of you ever seen that movie, Life with Father? Okay. You got to go to Amazon.com. You can get this movie on CD or DVD for like two bucks. Life with Father, you got to get it. it. It's a wonderful story. And there's a scene in it where Father, his name is Clarence Day, and his wife's name is Vinny, and they live in Victorian uh, America, like at the turn of the, at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. He's a banker or something, he's a businessman, and he's just the master, the ruler of his house. And uh, he finds out one morning before he goes to work that the preacher is coming by uh, to drill one of their children on the catechism. And he said, well, I'm glad you told me. I'll go. I'll be at the club. And his wife, Vinnie, says, Claire, I, I do wish you'd take more interest in the church. And he says, well, Vinnie. It's your job to get me into heaven. Everybody here thinks so highly of you. I think God must too. And Vinny, his wife, sweetly says, Well, I'll do my best, Claire. After all, I, it just wouldn't be heaven without you. Now, the whole movie is riddled with awful theology. (laughs) It's terrible theology. But isn't it a sweet sentiment that if our home isn't somehow duplicated in heaven, that it just wouldn't quite be heaven. And the way to make that happen is for heaven to be duplicated here in our home, that we can have a piece of paradise, something from before the fall happening within the four walls of our home. Don't you want that? 
I want that. And, and I've been privileged to see a little glimpse of that. And I appreciate it so much. I appreciate uh, God who designed this for me. He designed it for our pleasure, for our joy. This bit of paradise, a bit of the Garden of Eden for us to experience in a fallen world. But He he designed it more than just for our joy and our pleasure. He designed it for His glory that all the world might see the magnificent glory of a love that lays down its life for another. Of a devotion that submits to that kind of love. And of the fruit and offspring and result of the merging of that love and that devotion. It's all a picture of the glory of God. And, and in Ephesians it says that God is going to put the church on display that throughout the ages of eternity uh, we might be to the praise of the glory of His grace. And He's letting us display that right here, not in eternity, but in time, as we yield our homes and our relationship to Him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You. Thank You for the grand design of home and family. Thank you for what it pictures. Thank you for the reality that is behind it of a Savior who, like Adam, slept the sleep of death that you might bring from his side a bride, a bride that he could love, that he could cleanse, that he could remove every spot and wrinkle from, A bride that could bear fruit to Him. And Lord, I pray for for Sandy and for me. I pray for each couple here who is yet without child. I pray for each family here, mom and dad and children. And I pray for each young person here who has yet to experience their own marriage. That you would help us all to have the joy of experiencing what you have designed for us in the Garden of Eden. And what we will live with in eternity in heaven. That in this interim time, Lord, we might reflect the magnificent glory of our loving husband, Jesus, and his church. In his name we pray. Amen.